Turn, if you would, to the fifth chapter of the book of Matthew. We are working our way through the Sermon on the Mount uh, slowly. Wait a minute while I set this. These things scare the bejeebers out of me. If you can't see it, it is a uh, mouse trap. It's actually a rat trap. Uh, I'm sure many of you have used them before. We've used them on at least one occasion. Right now we have another rat trap. It has four legs and a tail and it's called a cat. So if this goes off while I'm teaching, it'll scare the bejeebers out of me. Matthew chapter 5, we finished off the Beatitudes, we finished off you are the salt and the light of the world, and last week we started with verse 17, that is kind of the introduction for the rest of the chapter. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What in the world does that mean? And we talked about that last week, that Christ is going to look at the law that the Pharisees had taken as only applying to external behavior. As long as I can look good on the outside, everything's okay. And he's going to take that and he's going to move it to a heart issue. What is your heart doing? What is your heart feeling? So if I don't kill anybody, that's a good thing. But he's going to say that anger... Anger in the heart is what produces the murder. So he ends up by saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And you go, oh shoot, the Pharisees were the professional good guys. I mean, they worked at looking good, and they did. The people were impressed. I mean, You make your laws, and then you make your laws to make sure you don't get close to those laws. And they followed those rules, and they were very careful about it. And the people said, how in the world can we survive if we have to be better than that? And Christ is going to finish chapter 5 with a series of examples of moving things from the external to the internal. We started last week with anger as the first example. And they all begin, you have heard it said, you shouldn't kill anybody. But I say to you. And then he elaborates how it really is a heart condition. Some of the time in this chapter, he's going to say, but I say to you. And what he says is actually going to contradict. Sometimes he's going to say, but I say unto you. And it's an elaboration. For example, murder. Murder is bad. We all know that murder is bad. But Christ says, if you're angry with your brother, you're worthy of judgment. In fact, if you just get so mad at him that you call him a fool, which to a Jewish audience would mean you're denying his place in the covenant. Because the book of Proverbs says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. So if you're telling somebody they are a fool, you're saying they're outside the covenant. If you do that because of anger, you are worthy of the, gate, of the fires of hell. That's the judgment that he makes. So we're going to quickly finish off the anger section 
and move on to the second example today, which is good old-fashioned adultery. <laughs> so I'll get a running start. We'll start in verse 21. We'll finish the section on anger pretty quickly. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. What was the purpose of offering a sacrifice in the temple? The purpose was to remove the guilt of sin. So I go to the temple, I've got my sheep, I've got my animal, I've got my bird, whatever it is, and I'm going to offer it as a sacrifice to remove the guilt of my sin. But then I remember my brother, who is the brother? We had a discussion about this last week, that, you know, we have a tendency to want to shrink the definition of brother. Now, as I said last week, you can shrink it as much as you want. You can shrink it down to your actual brother, and I still probably fail this one about getting mad at him, okay? But we see in the Scripture that God's desire is to broaden this. But let's say this is somebody that you are living in a covenant relationship with. This is a member of the, in this case, the Jewish community, and you remember that you have something against them. What do you do? Well, you blow it off and you tell yourself, I'll take care of it later. No. Why are you asking God to forgive you when this person has something against you? Don't worry about that. I mean, don't worry about giving your sacrifice. Rather, leave your sacrifice. I always like that point. Why do you leave the sacrifice? Because then you know you're coming back. Because if you take the sacrifice with you, you may just blow the whole thing off, right? If I've got to go make right with my brother before I can offer this sacrifice, I'm not going to bother with the sacrifice. You know people like that? You know? I come to church. I hear about the things that I've done, the things that I've done against my brother, and I stop going to church because it makes me feel bad. Leave your sacrifice and go be reconciled with your brother. Why? Because the relationship is more important than going through the outward behavior of the sacrifice itself. We talked last week, and we've talked on numerous occasions. You get to the prophets in the Old Testament, and the prophets are going, why are you wasting your time giving me these sacrifices? God speaking. I don't want them. I hate them. And you go, how can you hate the sacrifices when you ask us to do them? Because they were not doing them from their heart. They were simply doing them as external actions. I'm going to go through the motions and I'm done. Don't do that. Rather go be reconciled and then come back and offer your sacrifice. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. We're going to have a discussion about good old-fashioned legal cases later in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Because we're going to have this discussion about if somebody asks for your coat, you give him your shirt or you ask for this, you get that. Give them whatever they want, which is a horrible way to run a legal system, right? We'll have a discussion about that later. For now, let's just remember, we've got some lawsuit in action here. And what is your thinking? What is my thinking? I know what you're thinking because I'm thinking the same thing. I've got to protect what's mine. I've got to defend my rights. I've got to be tough. I've got to win. And what is Jesus saying? Don't be angry with your brother. What is it that causes all these these lawsuits and things? Anger, disputes, resolve that. And you know what? I told you we're going to have a discussion later about lawsuits, right? You know what he's saying here? It's better to lose your money than to lose the relationship. Isn't that a scary thought? Isn't that a weird thought for our world today? Because we're taught you have to win. You have to win whatever the cost is. Your honor is on the line. You've got to do it. And he says, no. While you're on the way, figure out how to settle the situation. It's interesting if you look at the scripture. It talks about why do believers have lawsuits above, against other believers and take it to the pagan judge to resolve the problem. And Paul just comes out and says, isn't there anyone among you who is wise enough to deal with this case? It's a very different way of thinking. So, you've heard it said, don't murder. I say to you, if you're angry with your brother, you're worthy of judgment. Now, I want to back up just one smidgen because I know what you're thinking. Okay? If I've got this external law, there may be a chance that I can keep it. Okay? Maybe. Just slightly. You know, I'm not going to... I haven't killed anyone yet. So maybe there's a chance of me keeping it. But if we move it into a condition of the heart, there's no way in the world I can keep it. I mean, I'll be real honest. I've been angry with people this week. (laughs) I won't go into any details. What good is God doing me by making the rules such so difficult that I can't have a chance of doing it? (sighs) That's the point. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who acknowledge they can't do it. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's how we get into the kingdom. But there's actually more to it. We've discussed the fact that the law was given to us to show that we couldn't do it. But it was also given to us to show what true human thriving requires. And what he's saying is, yes, it is bad for the community and it's bad for you if you murder somebody. But you know what? It's bad for the community and it's bad for you if you hate your brother. 
what do you do? Well, you do what you do with every sin. You confess it. You repent. You ask the Holy Spirit to guide you. And next time, you do better. There's nothing magical here. But until you know that it's sin, you're going to act like it's okay. Well, I've got a reason to be mad at them. They were bad to me. You know, we talked just briefly last week that there is biblically such a thing as righteous anger. In theory, there is such a thing. We know that because we know that Christ cleaned out the temple. We know that there's scriptures about don't let the sun go down. We know all this stuff, but in reality, most of my anger, all of my anger, is not of a righteous nature. Most of my anger is a result of me not getting what I want. And what he's telling us is that's sin that needs to be dealt with just like any other sin that is more obvious to people around you. The Pharisees were only interested in the obvious sins. As long as I looked good, and here all of us are sitting together today looking good. And Christ says, but you know what? I know what's in the heart. Now, this isn't meant to drive us to run and hide. It's meant to drive us to the cross where we know forgiveness exists. That's what it's supposed to do. It's not meant to be a bigger club. You know, the external things is a club this big and the internal is a club this big and now we're getting beat over bigger. That's not what it's meant to do. It's meant to tell us how we ought to really live our lives. So, that's the end of last week's lesson. (laughs) Verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Quick, who said that? Moses, God, to Moses. It's in the Ten Commandments. What number is it? I'm testing you. Six or seven, depending on how you count, right? (laughs) Well, it depends if you're a Catholic or a... Anyway. No, really, they have a different numbering scheme. You know that, right? You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. I remember being in a Sunday school class as a high school student and the teacher getting up and saying, fornication is sex outside of marriage. Adultery is sex inside of marriage. It's gaining on you, right? One of the other teachers took it upon themselves to kind of clarify that adultery is sex inside of marriage with someone you're not married to. Okay? You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks that a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her, oh shoot, in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members 
than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Let's talk about sex. No, let's talk about adultery. It is interesting because our society today, as a general rule, would continue to go with the biblical mandate and say that murder is wrong, right? We're not going to talk about abortion and things of that nature, but, you know, just pulling out a knife and killing somebody, most people in our society today would say that's wrong. When it gets to the idea of adultery, that is me having sex while I'm married to my wife, having sex with somebody else, our society is rather ambivalent. You know, these things just happen. And in fact, I know this because I read a book review of a book that's just out, you know, it might be good for you. You know, it might just kind of spice up your marriage, it might demonstrate that you've become a better person, and it might be a good thing. Now, it'll probably destroy your marriage. This is what the book says, but it'd still be good for you. We as a society have decided that morality really has nothing to do with sex. Which is interesting because 50 years ago, you could have been led to believe that all morality dealt with was sex. And now we've decided that it has nothing to do with it. You know, if I want to do some activity and nobody else gets hurt, that's the phrase that's used. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Then why not do it? Why not? And this is important to this passage because, you know, when we talked about murder, okay, we know that's wrong. Then Christ turns to anger and says, that's wrong too. We go, oh, okay, I'll, I'll struggle with that one because it's being used as an illustration of murder. Well, this one, if we've decided that adultery is just, well, it's something that happens, what are we going to do with looking at a woman and lusting after her, well, I can tell you what the answer to that is. We've decided that's no big deal. We have decided that that's just normal. You know what's driven that in our society today? I can tell you that real easy. That right there. I can find more pornography on this device than you could have found 50 years ago going to the seediest store in town. And you know what? Nobody's ever going to know. Nobody's ever going to know what I've looked at on this machine. Unless, of course, you take some steps to allow them to do so. Why is it that we've decided it's no big deal? But before we answer that question, what does God say about it? You have heard it was said you should not commit adultery. 
You ready for this? Sex outside of marriage is wrong. Sex, if one of you is married with somebody who is not married to you, is and always will be wrong. It just is. No ifs, ands, or buts. No psychobabble about how it shows that you're growing as a person. Not, I really wanted to do it. Not, it really, really, it was important to me. None of that matters. God says it's wrong. It will destroy your marriage. One of the books we use in our marriage mentoring program, the last chapter of the book, raises the question, is it possible to save your marriage after one of the partners has committed adultery? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes, but it's really, really hard. Why? Why is it so important that God put it in one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery? In fact, in the Old Testament law, in the Old Testament law, if you were caught in the act of adultery, they brought you into the public square, they got really big rocks and they threw them at you until you were dead. That's why, trying to trap Jesus, they dragged the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, and they say, okay, here's a stone, why don't you throw the first one? We'll get into that discussion much later. It was important. Why was it important? Because in biblical terms, marriage is a picture It is a picture of our relationship with God. Particularly in the New Testament, it is a picture of the church, which is the bride, and Christ, who is the groom. And when we defile marriage, we are defiling the picture, and we are showing the world what we truly believe about God. Hmm. And we think we can do that without consequences. Now, I'm going to put in a caveat here. I'm going to put in the same caveat next week when we talk about divorce. Many of us have fallen into sexual sins. What do we do about it? What did I just say? We confess, we repent, we ask the Holy Spirit to guide us, and we work at doing it better next time. It's the same. It's a sin. We deal with sin. So don't think that I am sitting up here with a huge club beating you over the head. I'm not. But to deny something is a sin that God has said is a sin is not doing any of us any good. If God says it's a sin, and we've done it, we need to confess, we need to repent, and we need to ask guidance from the Holy Spirit. Hmm. But I say to you, Jesus says, if you've looked at a woman and lusted in your heart, you have committed adultery with her already. We're toast. Why would he say that? 
Why would he say that? And doesn't our society prove that that's wrong? If a large percentage of the population views pornography on a regular basis, isn't that better than actually going out and doing the real thing? Isn't it better? Isn't it good for us? I mean, it keeps us off the streets, right? (laughs) Several, several years ago, a college decided to do a study on the effects of pornography on college males. And you know how these studies work, right? You find a control group who has not engaged in looking at pornography. You find another group that does look at pornography, and you look at differences between the groups, right? Scientific experiments, they happen all the time. You're testing a new drug. You give one group of people the real drug. You give the other control group a sugar pill that looks like the drug, and you see the difference. They had to cancel the experiment. Why did they do that? Because they could not find a control group of college males who were not actively looking at pornography. So here's the question. Who cares? Who cares? Why does it matter? Time Magazine, every issue, has a... uh, interview with some celebrity on the back page where they ask them random questions. Sometimes you wonder why they ask this person these questions. But six months ago or whenever it was, they had a female actress on there and they were asking her questions. And one of the questions was, what do you think about pornography? And she says, well, it's okay as long as it's consensual. (laughs) And I go, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, you hope that it means that the person in the picture consented to do it. We hear stories of people not doing it. But I'll give you that one. Okay, let's assume that that was consensual. The person looking at the picture, I assume, is consenting to do it. But you have to ask, did that guy's wife consent to it? Did that guy's future wife consent to it? Did that guy's daughters consent to it? Did the parents of the female in the picture consent to it? What does it mean? It means we don't care. It means we don't care. We have convinced ourselves that sexual sins are not sins at all. Several years ago, they made a movie adaptation of the wonderful novel, The Scarlet Letter. You've read The Scarlet Letter? What is The Scarlet Letter? It's an A that the woman caught in adultery had to wear. And we can have a long discussion about whether that's a good thing for society or not, that women caught in the act of adultery have to wear a scarlet letter. But the book is really about the power of unconfessed sin because it was the preacher who she had had sex with, and he was not brought into the public arena, and it ate him to death. Okay? But they remade the movie. And guess what? Having the scarlet letter was a badge of honor, because it showed you were standing up against the puritanical ideals of the society in which you lived. 
You were a free person. You were strong. I did not see the movie, but I did read four or five reviews of it. All of that, our changing view of sexuality. Yes. You think they evolve? Hmm, maybe. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say to you, if you've looked after a woman and lusted, you've committed adultery already with her in your heart. Now, I mentioned last week we were going to touch on one little subject, and I'm just going to drop it in here. If that's true, shouldn't I just go ahead and have the adultery if I'm already guilty. I mean, if you're going to get the blame, and we laugh at it, and we laugh at it, but the reality is, I've read non-Christians who mock this whole chapter because of the idea, oh, you're saying being angry is just as bad as murdering someone. That doesn't make any sense. You're saying looking at a dirty picture is just as bad as, well, we need to look at whose perspective we're looking from. We as a society of human beings make laws to stop certain behavior. But we acknowledge the fact that I really can't read your heart. I can't. Okay, If you pull out a knife and stab somebody, I can judge that behavior. But if you're sitting there with a nice smile on your face, seething in anger because somebody did you wrong, well, I can't judge that. So we as a society do look at the external action because that's what we can see. God doesn't have that limitation. God sees the condition of your heart. God knows what produced that murder, the anger, the bitterness. He knows what produced that adultery, the lust that preceded it. And though not all anger leads to murder, God knows that all anger is bad for you, it's bad for your soul, And it is a sin. So yes, God knows that lust is bad for you. It's bad for society. And it is a sin. And he knows what it is. So what do we do about it? Here it comes. You ready for it? If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. And throw it away. Because it is better for you to enter heaven missing a part of your body than to be sent to hell complete. Okay. How many of you are missing an eye? (laughs) I actually contemplated wearing a patch in this morning. Is he really telling you to cut out your eye? 
in the next verse. Is he really telling you to whack off your hand? Now, let's answer the question the easy way first. We know that poking out one of your eyes is not going to solve your problem with lust. Right? It's just not going to do it. First off, you've got another eye. (laughs) And secondly, you've got a vivid imagination. We could probably poke out both of your eyes, and it would do no good at all. Then what is he saying? Hebrews 12, 4. 14, excuse me. 12, 14 says... No, that's not it either. Oh, that's not Hebrews. (laughs) I'll get there eventually. Strive for peace with everyone. Okay, that's a good verse. I mean, we dealt with that. Blessed are the peacemakers. As much as it is possible, be at peace with everyone. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness of without which no one can see the Lord. Strive for peace and strive for holiness. Some translations say make every effort to have peace and to have holiness. Make every effort. Question, when do we know you've made every effort? Well, I tried real hard. No, you didn't make every effort. Okay? Our problem with sin is that we enjoy it too much. And we work very hard at acting like we don't enjoy it, but we really do. What do I mean? Christian writers used to talk at length about the mortification of sin. We see it in the scriptures, put to death, put to death, Kill, mortify the deeds of the flesh. Don't do them. You are to strive, work to not get caught up in sin. What does this mean? Well, it means that there's certain things you don't do. There's certain places you don't go. There's certain TV shows you don't watch. There's certain movies you don't go to see. Why? Because they're a trap. They're a trap that trap you in sin. Well, this sounds rather legalistic, isn't it? I listen to the uh, sermons. Some of my kids go to a singles ministry at another church in town, and I listen to the sermons to hear what my kids are listening to. And they were talking about sexual sins. It is a singles group, and, I mean, it's an obvious thing to deal with. And the pastor speaking says, you know, I have young men coming to it all the time. I'm struggling with pornography. And he says, and he said, I really, really want to, to stop this. How can I do that? And they say, and the pastor says, give me your phone. Why? Because I'm going to smash it. You can't do that. Then you're not serious about dealing with pornography, are you? No, I'm really, really serious. Give me your phone. Go get a phone that does text messages and makes phone calls. Really? That? 
Let me put things on a scale for you, okay? At one end of the scale is total apathy. I'm not doing anything. At the other end is cutting off body parts. That's way down here, right? I'll just keep walking out the wall. (laughs) Between there and there, there's a world of things that you can do to deal with the temptations that you come in contact with. The reality is we just don't think it's serious enough. We just don't think that it's that important. Now, it's fascinating. It is fascinating to me. I learn something new every week. What does it say? If your right hand causes you to sin, causes you to sin, causes you to sin, that word is often translated things like stumbling block, offends you. But let me let you in on a little secret. There's a Greek word that is translated there which is derived from another Greek word. And you know what that Greek word means? It's that piece right there of the trap. It is the part of the trap that you put the bait on to tempt people into sin. That right there. Not some abstract thing. We're not talking about I'm walking down the street and a scantily clad woman uh, steps out in front of me. We're not talking about that. I'm talking about there's the cheese and I'm a mouse and I'm going to go get it. And I know it. I know it's a trap. And I step right into it. Why do we do that? Because we like it so much. I want to be angry. I want to lust after things that God has told me are not good for me. That's what we want to do. What's the solution? Is it gouging out your eyes? Slicing off your hand? Probably not. That's a picture that Jesus uses to tell us how serious it really is. But between apathy, which is where we are right now, And cutting off your hand or poking out your eye. There's all kinds of things that you can do to deal with sin. But the reality is, if you don't want to deal with it, it doesn't matter because you're not going to do it. The scripture says, put to death the deeds of the flesh. How do we do it? Well, there's a good old-fashioned earthly way of doing it. But it's like me telling you, don't think of a polar bear. What's the first thing that happens? You have visions of polar bears popping up here in your mind all over the place. You know? If I told you, don't think of a naked woman, (laughs) what we have to do is replace that with something else. Replace it with something better. There's a book on dating that I read several years ago. Once again, my children were about that age, and so I started reading books about it. That's what I did. 
And the authors, it's a couple, they actually had a marvelous uh, picture. Do you remember the Odyssey? Ulysses is fought in the Trojan War. He's trying to get home, and it takes him nine years. He gets lost. He goes chasing after sea monsters. He gets seduced by this person and that person. He fights the Cyclops. But they've got to go by this place where the sirens are. You know who they are? They sing this beautiful song. Most beautiful song in the world. And they drive men crazy. And the men listening to the music run their ships upon the rock and are killed. That's what happens. It's actually interesting if you start reading about the sirens. They're kind of half bird and half female. Go figure. And it just gets interesting where they make the dividing line. (laughs) Ulysses is warned. So he tells all of his people, all of his sailors to put wax in their ears so they cannot hear. But he wants to hear the music. So he commands his sailors to tie him to the mask. And he says, no matter how much I scream, no matter what my behavior is, do not let me go. Because he wants to hear the music. And he hears it. And they do survive. He almost goes mad. But they survive because they plugged up their ears with wax. But there's another story about the sirens. Do you remember the story of Jason and the Argonauts? Golden Fleece, that kind of stuff. They're sailing on their voyage, and they have to go by the sirens. But part of their crew is a man by the name of Orpheus. He is the son of the king of Thrace, and his mother was a muse, and he was the most beautiful musician ever on the planet. And he pulls out his harp, and he starts playing his music. And the sirens are singing their song, and he's playing his music, and the beautiful music drives away the chaos of the sirens. What is the point? I can stuff my ears full of wax all day long, and in our society, I'm still going to be toast. What we need is something better to replace the lust of the flesh, and the desires of this world. What we need is a vision of who God is. Not a tyrant, not the mythical monster who is sitting there waiting to beat us with the club, but the loving God who desires what is best for us and wants us to prosper, and he knows that if I pursue the lust of this flesh, I will never be satisfied, I will never be fulfilled, my relationships will be damaged, it'll be bad all the way down. What we need is to replace it with a desire to serve God. Philippians 4.8 tells us, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. If you're going to go on a diet, 
to lose weight. You do not stuff the refrigerator with high-calorie drinks, high-calorie muffins, high-calorie cakes, sweets, candies, etc. If you do that, you will lose. I mean, that's just flat out saying you're going to lose. If your mental life is dominated by the lust of the flesh, you will lose. Until such time as your thoughts, your actions are led by the Holy Spirit, you will not win this battle. But you have to win this battle. Blessed are the pure in heart. We saw in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who see God and God alone. Question, is this easy? No. In this world, it is very, very difficult. We use sex to sell cars, toys, beer, and anything else that we can imagine. We have TV shows that contain more sexual behavior than you would see in really bad movies 50 years ago. It's just part of it. I remember reading an article by John Piper. You know who John Piper is? Fabulous author. And he has a column where he just answers questions. And somebody asked a young person, is it okay to watch Game of Thrones? Now, Game of Thrones is a very well thought of TV show. Apparently it's very well made. You know, lots of excitement, great complicated story, and lots of nudity. And the argument was, if that's what all of our peers are watching, we need to watch it so we can communicate with them. And John Piper says, what the world needs today are more holy young people and less young people who can relate to the fallen world in which we live. Our society is bombarded with images that drive us to adultery. The question is, and this, this really is the only question, are you going to believe God or are you going to believe the world? Because the world says it's no big deal. It really does. They'll still admit that murder is a sin. The rest of it, eh, not so much. So that's where we stop today. Next week, we're going to talk about divorce. That won't be fun. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that you would teach us all to seek after you, to seek after your thoughts and not the desires of this world. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.